Hebrews chapter 9 is where we're going to be. Um, and let me just go ahead and make a confession before we dive into uh, tonight. We're going to do things just a little bit differently tonight due to the fact that we're covering, uh, kind of flowing into a topic. So last week we looked at uh, Hebrews chapter 9 and talked specifically about uh, the priesthood of Christ, namely that he is our great high priest. And we talked about how there were two major things that, that, were, that, that were a part of the office of priest. Number one was the sacrificial work. So when we look back into the book of Leviticus, you'll see that um, the priest made a common practice, daily practice, of sacrificing on behalf of uh, the nation of Israel. They would make sacrifices for themselves. They would make sacrifices for others. And ultimately what we looked at was how the sacrificial system that was set up in the book of Leviticus could never actually atone for anyone's sin. It could give them a ritual purification, but ultimately was not able to purify them of their sin, to atone for their sin. And so throughout the entirety of the time the sacrificial system was in place, they were still dead in their sin. They needed something to atone for them. And so when they looked at the picture of of animals being sacrificed, what they saw essentially was their desperate need of one to shed one to shed blood for them. They knew, like as they watched, and even as we looked at the Day of Atonement and talked briefly about the fact this would take place year after year after year, that as they did that, they would be certain of this, they would have to return next year. That if they were to walk back and start their journey home and they sinned, they would have to essentially wait until a following year for their sin to be atoned for. It would be a weighty system, right? Like even though you just saw your sin atoned for, but at the exact same time, you know that as I travel home, I'm going to sin. I had to wait a whole other year for purification for sin. It was meant to be this heavy thing. And so we looked at how Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of, of, of the priesthood that we saw in the book of Leviticus. He atoned for our sins. So let me run back through a couple of things real quickly. So as we lead into this second part of Christ's priestly work. So Hebrews chapter 9 uh, verse 11 says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, so we talked about how uh, Christ's sacrifice was better in the sense that it was, uh, his sacrifice was made in, a, in the true holy of holies in the heavenly tabernacle. Uh, in verse 12, it says he, want, he entered once for all uh, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, that he sacrificed his own blood and it was sufficient once for all, as you see there. And then in verse 13, it says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, and this is where we talked about the result of that sacrifice, listen to this, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purified our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So ultimately the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross was far superior to any of the sacrifices we saw in the Old Testament. In the book of Leviticus, when, when, when bulls and, and, and goats and birds and all these different things that were sacrificed, they really did nothing but the sacrifice of Christ actually atoned for the sins of the people uh, past, present, and future. And so when, the, when, when Christ offered his own blood in that place, he made actual atonement for our sin. And that's something to rejoice in because when we uh, have the, the finished work of Christ applied to our life, when his blood washes over us and cleanses us, then we have absolute confidence entering into the holy places, as we'll see in just a a little bit, um, that 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 blood actually can atone for sin. But that's not the entirety of the priestly work of Christ. There is a second aspect. So let's look at uh, verse 15. It says this, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. 
And so this uh, evening, what we're going to talk about is this idea of intercession, of what uh, this primary role of the priest was, was in mediating and standing in the gap, essentially, between God and man. So when we look at the Levites, what they essentially did was stand in the gap. They were the ones who made sacrifices for the nation of Israel. They were the ones who uh, did all the priestly work to make sure that the, uh, the ordinances, the sacrifices, all those things were done in the nation of Israel. So this evening, what we're going to do is we're going to consider how Christ mediates for us. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. As I prepared, there there are some sermons that we come to. There's some texts that we look at that when you come to them, they almost establish their own tone. Um, There's there's heaviness about them. And um, when we come to this, I'm just going to confess to you, there's a great weight um, here for me. Uh, This is is a doctrine, this is a truth um, that that is crucial to the Christian life. It's crucial to the way that we live our lives. It's crucial to the way that we interact with other people. And frankly, if we don't understand the facts that Christ is actively interceding on our behalf, we will live half-hearted lives for the gospel. Um, And so with that, just a confession. This is heavy. Um, So if there's heaviness here, I'm not going to try to relieve it. It's just a reality. And so when we come to, to... to think on and meditate on the fact that we truly do have a true God and true man that stands in the gap between uh, the holy God and and we sinful people. Um, It's meant to weigh on us, Um, but it's also meant to give great comfort and rest. So let's pray together, and then we'll begin looking at Christ our priest. Father, we love you, and we are grateful, Lord, that you sent one to dwell in flesh to come and to um, step into time, Lord, even considering all the way back to his incarnation, imagining um, the God of heaven, holy, pure, righteous, being born essentially in a feeding trough. Lord, that you came to intercede. You came to mediate on our behalf. And Father, as we come to this truth, would you allow it to sit heavy on us? Lord, not heavy in the sense that we're burdened by it, but, but heavy in, the, in its beauty, heavy in its reality that we indeed have a true great high priest who mediates on our behalf that now we have access to the Father and we can draw near with hearts full of assurance and confidence that we can draw near to the great holy God. And so, Father, I come confessing my weakness to you, but a a frail man. But, Lord, I come with absolute confidence knowing that your word is authoritative. Lord, that your word accomplishes its purpose every single time it is proclaimed. And, Lord, uh, above all, my prayer is that we would make much of Jesus here. That as we think upon him, as we consider the great work that he has accomplished on our behalf, that we would be overjoyed um, about the gospel and we would be great heralds of it. It is in the name of Christ and through his precious blood we pray. Amen. So Hebrews chapter 19 verse 15 is kind of where we're going to camp for just a moment, but just a full confession because the book of Hebrews spends so much time covering the priestly work of Christ. We're going to be bouncing around, so we're going to play a very small game of Bible drills. Um, but, But really, I want you to see that this is not an idea that just the writer of Hebrews had, but it goes all the way back. Uh, to Genesis. Frankly, it goes all the way back to Adam. So a couple of things that I want to point out here. Number one, Christ's Christ's sacrificial work led to his mediatory work. So let me explain this. So who Christ sacrificed for is ultimately who he mediates for. So let me explain it this way. Um, Christ died for his people. 
That means that he is actively interceding for his people. Now, this should give us a great confidence. So last week when we talked about uh, that, that blood that was able to atone for our sin, that actually saved, that the cross, that, that, that when Christ went into that holy place, he made sacrifices for sin. He didn't forget any of your sins. He paid for all of them in full once for all. And we talked about the great confidence that we have in that, that even after we're believers in Christ and we sin and we fall short, when we rebel against him, even, uh, you know, it, it's such a tragedy when we consider the fact that we who were born again, that had the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us, that it's almost an extra wickedness about it when we sin. But even that sin was paid for in full on the cross, and we have great confidence in that. And so we're able to live our lives free from guilt and shame because Christ bore that on the cross. And let me explain it this way. So your sin being paid for in full gives you great confidence. But how much more so do we have confidence that Christ who bore those sins is actively interceding on our behalf. That means that he's not uh, a God who, or Christ who died and has is, is remained dead, that he's no longer working on your behalf, but he is ever constantly working for you, that he's ever constantly interceding for you. And what I'm primarily trying to point out is this, that his sacrifice freed us from the penalty of the covenant of works. Now, I have to explain this really quickly. So if you look under, under number two there, It says priestly mediation through the scriptures. And the first thing that we look at is Adam. So there is this interesting moment in creation where the the joys, the, the benefits of living in Eden is completely based on who? It's based on Adam. Adam was given one command, right? What was the command? Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Simple command, right? I mean, we look at that command and we're like, seriously, that's all you had to do? Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Adam's uh, joy and comfort in being able to reside in the garden was completely based upon his work. If he was obedient, then he would be able to dwell eternally in that garden. He would be able to uh, eat of the tree of, of, of life all of his days. He would have been able to sit in that place. And I love Genesis 2.9. It says, And the Lord God made to spring up in the garden every tree that it was a delight to the eye and good for food. That Adam was able to dwell in this place and could have enjoyed it forever had he only been obedient. Had he only been obedient? And see, what we find ourselves in is this is the, the just, just for three chapters, we see this idea of a covenant of works. It's completely based on you, Adam. If you're obedient, then, then you and your posterity, all your children, your children's children, will be able to dwell here eternally. You'll be able to enjoy the presence of God. You'll be able to enjoy the good gifts that God has offered to you. And, and, and you'll just be able to, to, to live the dream, essentially. No sin, no death, no suffering. You don't get to experience that, but it's based on you. And what happens? Adam and Eve are deceived. Eve eats of the fruit and gave some to her husband who was with her. And ultimately what happens is this. Romans chapter 5 makes it abundantly clear. Romans 5.19 says this. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners... So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteousness. And so what we're talking about here is this idea of headship, of a representative. And friends, unfortunately, we find ourselves in one of two camps. We are either represented by Adam, meaning that we are under the exact same curse that Adam is under. If you sin, there is punishment, there is uh, eternal wrath for you. And he's our representative. He's the one who stands before God. He's the the one that we're condemned in because of his rebellion, because of his sin. We then are condemned to repeat the process, essentially, and be condemned for our sin. Now, that's a major issue, isn't it? We need a new representative. 
And that's the primary purpose of Christ. That's why we see this phrase mentioned in verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so throughout the life of Christ, we see this take place. We see this picture of the covenant of works being fulfilled perfectly. You see, Adam failed horribly. He was given one command, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he failed. He failed in a perfect, flawless environment. I mean, how do you fail here? How do you fail? How do you mess this up? There's, there's nothing to, to, I mean, like, yes, you have the, the snake that's causing some issue there, but, but you're given all this good things. Just, just be obedient to this one thing. And he failed. But how beautiful is it that we have one who was obedient in a completely imperfect environment? One of the really cool pictures is this. Uh, Adam, and, Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden by the, by the serpent. And then we see an almost mirror image of this happen in the book of Matthew. Uh, Satan, I mean, uh, yes, yeah, Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness, correct? Can you imagine being tempted in the wilderness where you have no food, no drink, you're tired, you're worn out? Can we agree that that is an imperfect environment? No one wants to be tempted in the first place. Uh, and... Why would we want to do it in the weakest possible point of our human lives? Frail and feeble as we are, we need food. We need water. We need things to give us strength. And when they're removed from us, we are so, it's so easy for us to fall. But Christ did not. Christ did not fail. He is our better representative. And so what I want to point out to you here is this. Adam is the very first representative that we see in creation. Adam is our representative. And we are condemned in him if he be our primary representative. If Adam is our representative, if we continue in this idea of covenant of works, and friends, let me be honest with you, there are many of us who really do live under a covenant of works. We are fools when we do, but we do. And I will confess to you that all the morality that we see in creation, whether it be men who simply aim to do what is considered good in our present day, ultimately what they are trying to do is make up for the fall of their great, great first father. They're trying to to balance out the fact, I know I'm condemned in my sin. It doesn't matter if it be one or millions. I am condemned in my sin. And it doesn't matter how much good I produce, I will be condemned because I have fallen short of the glory of God, of his high standard of holiness and perfection. And if it be the covenant of works that we are under, then friends, we are all doomed. We are all doomed. We will be condemned in our sin. And it doesn't matter how we cover ourselves. And you see Adam and Eve, foolish as they were, cover themselves with fig leaves. And it was not sufficient to cover them for their sin. Instead, we see something different. Instead, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, uh, and maybe 21, we see uh, God cover them with the skins of animals. Looking forward to this better representative that would come, one that would cover their shame. So we see priestly ministry, a representative ministry all throughout the scripture, starting with Adam. And then secondly, we see it in Genesis chapter 19. Uh, this is an interesting story. Abraham and Lot, many of you, are, I would, most of you probably are familiar with this story. Abraham and Lot, you know, their family. And Abraham loves Lot despite the fact that he gets him into all types of strife. And Lot is dwelling in an incredibly sinful area. And God says, I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm going to kill them all. Rightfully so, and we've talked about this in the past. Recently, our pastor uh, preached on the fact that when uh, Israel came in and conquered Canaan, that was uh, the, the just wrath of God being emptied on a nation that had stored sin and, and, and harbored sin, that there is not a single one innocent that all deserve death. And so in the exact same way as he looks at Sodom storing up wrath for itself, uh, Abraham desires to intercede for Lot. 
And essentially what he does is have an interesting conversation with God. If, there's, if there'd be a hundred in the land, would you spare it for a hundred? And he said, yes, I'd spare it for a hundred. And he kind of goes down the list and eventually hits 10. But ultimately what we find out that happens is God wipes out Sodom, but rescues who? Lot and his family. Why? Well, Genesis 19 says, but God remembered Abraham. Abraham. It's not Abraham that he's saving. It's Lot, it's Lot that he's saving. But he's rescuing Lot based on, not Lot, but Abraham. The one who he had a covenant relationship with. The one he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I've given you all these promises. I'm going to bring them to fruition. And you've asked of me to rescue Lot. So here, here's, your, here's your nephew here. You see, this is, this is the idea of a priestly, a mediatory work. Lot was not spared because Lot was righteous. We see in Hebrews, it says righteous Lot. I am convinced that what we see there is the idea of he was righteous in his, uh, in his uh, day, in his environment, but still there was sin in him. We understand that Lot was, sin, was a sinner and had fallen short in the glory of God and deserved death. But instead, he's spared. He's spared only because Abraham wanted him to be alive. The only reason that Lot ever continued in the book of Genesis all the way in, we see that his posterity go throughout the Old Testament, but the only reason he was ever spared was because Abraham interceded for him. The only reason. So this intercessory ministry was the work of, uh, really illustrated all throughout the Old Testament. Then we see Moses do it. And I love when Moses mediates for the people of Israel because Israel had lost their mind as they did multiple times, but especially in Exodus 32. They have recently, recently, I mean so very recently, witnessed the plagues. Can you imagine being in Egypt, watching the plagues? Would you not be so convinced of the strength of your God? I mean, consider just, I mean, I mean you might start almost small, right? You've got, you've got uh, water being turned to blood. You've got frogs. You've got locusts. You've got hail. All these things are incredible. But then just, just pause for a minute and consider darkness, just for a brief moment. I mean, darkness that is, that is just where you can feel it. Yet, Israel didn't experience that darkness. They had light. Why? Because they were God's people, and he gave them that light. The joke is that if an Egyptian was holding a torch that was lit, it wouldn't give light, but if you hand it to the Israelite, it would. That God made a distinction. He said, look, I'm going to provide for you. I'm revealing to, to all of Egypt that I am the true creator of the universe, but at the exact same time, God was, was revealing something different to the Israelites. He was revealing to them that he was deliverer. He was the one who was able to rescue and to redeem his people, to bring them out of slavery. So at the exact same time, God is making this picture known. And so Israel has just watched these great acts. Not only that, but they've just passed through the Red Sea. I mean, they just passed through the Red Sea. Walking on dry ground, they walk through, and behind them, I'm sure they're still quaking in fear, as we all would be, as the Egyptians would chase them, as the last soul of Israel would make it out of the Red Sea, the Red Sea would close, collapse on them, and kill all their enemies. This is the God that Israel serves. Yet, uh, Moses leaves them for a brief moment, and and he comes down, and they're worshiping a golden calf. I love what Aaron says. We put it in there and it just came out. I mean, they, they just witnessed all of this and now you're worshiping Baal? You're worshiping an idol? You just made this thing out of gold and you're dancing around it? And what, what, what Moses says is absolutely astounding. He says, let me go up that I may atone. That I may atone. He's essentially saying, I, I'm going to sacrifice myself. Even to the point where he says, blot my name out of the book of life. 
And, and the Lord says, no, I'll blot sinners' names out of the book of life. And so all throughout the scripture, there's this picture of, of mediatory work. Moses made mediation. Um, Adam still stands to some degree as a mediator, but a, a, a false one, a, one that cannot actually save. Abraham and Lot, we said that. And then finally, we see it in the Levites. The Levites' primary job was to intercede, was to mediate for the people of Israel. They constantly stood in the gap. Constantly. They were ever constantly taking in, taking in animals and sacrificing them. And can you imagine what a task that would be? How weighty and burdensome that would be to, make, uh, to, to mediate for the nation of Israel? How sinful they actually were? Could you imagine if we brought sacrifices for every sin that we committed willingly? There'd be blood everywhere. I mean, everywhere. We would not go a single day without seeing bloodshed. And one of the interesting things about it is we would also not go a single day without realizing that our sin deserves bloodshed. And Israel would watch this day in and day out and the Levites would stand in the gap. The Levites would ever constantly shed blood for the nation of Israel. Killing day in and day out. But it wasn't just the sacrifices that they stood in the gap for. They also stood in the gap for the blessings, that they would do wave offerings, times of great celebration for the people of Israel. They would gather, and even on the Day of Atonement, we mentioned that briefly last week, but the Day of Atonement, even though it was a day where we saw bloodshed and we saw all the, all the uh, sin, the unintentional sin of Israel be atoned for, it would also be a day of celebrating, wouldn't it? Yes, my sin, I see it there. Even though it hasn't actually come to pass right now, I know that it's going to be paid for in full. Those who looked forward and saw by faith one who would die on their behalf, they would rejoice in that day. Others would be burdened by their sin, but what a day of great rejoicing that would be that there might indeed be one who would pay for my sin in actuality, that might actually save. And so... We see all of this mediation take place throughout the Old Testament. And finally we see this. We see this fulfillment of the covenant of grace. And I mentioned the covenant of works real briefly. So first of all, we see this covenant of works is the idea that our, uh, our eternal fate, our good, is based upon our work. And so we understand that Adam failed that completely. And if we're in Adam... The covenant of works will not do anything salvific for us. It will only do one thing, the exact same thing that the law does. If we measure ourselves up to it, we will fail. We will be condemned in our sin. Because in reality, the covenant of works, the covenant of the law, had the ability to pronounce one righteous. Did you know that? I mean, whenever we think about the Ten Commandments, let's just take those. Can you imagine talking to someone and saying, I have actually fulfilled every single one of those, never broken one? It would actually declare them righteous, wouldn't it? If they were able to say, I fulfilled these works perfectly, I've never sinned, I've never fallen short of the glory of God, I've done every single thing that the law has commanded to me perfectly, then, then the law would be the, the measuring stick that said, perfect. Perfect. But the problem is, it's never done that for just a man. We've, I mean, if we simply took one of the Ten Commandments, we would find ourselves woefully in debt to the law for blood. Yet, there is good news, great news, as a matter of fact, that the law has actually declared one righteous, but just one, namely Christ. And because Christ perfectly fulfilled the covenants of the covenant of the law, the covenant of works, we see this at play in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 says this, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. 
so that, the, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Listen to this. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You see, in Christ, a new covenant is implemented, a covenant of grace. It is not based on your merit. It is not based on your good deeds. It is based on the work of one and one only, namely Christ. And it is based solely on his free gift to you that if you would place your faith in him and trust him, then you are no longer under the weight of the law. That it is nothing but a schoolmaster for you, pointing you in the direction of the righteous one. That is what the entire purpose of the law was, all the way back from its institution. It wasn't to just show you how righteous you were, you were or were not. Instead, it was meant to point you to the only one who would ever bear true righteousness in, uh, in, here on the earth and one that would be able to impute, to give you that righteousness if he would be your representative and only if he would be your representative. You see, to become in Christ is not like becoming in Adam. Being born essentially makes you in Adam. You are his posterity. You are his children. We all are. But being in Christ is completely wrapped up in grace. It is the free gift of God. And what a sweet thing it is that our eternal bliss, our enjoyment of God is not wrapped up in us. Because if it were, then we would still be under the covenant of works. We'd be measuring ourselves up to it day in and day out, finding ourselves wanting. That we would be completely in debt to the law. If it were all laid out before us, have you met this standard? Could you imagine giving a defense? Can you imagine the law being placed above, uh, beside your life? Can you imagine attempting to defend that? the greatest of attorneys would fail. Because we are not, because God is not like us, that he does not know the intent in the hearts of man. Even if you appeared to be righteous, you would, oh, the depths of the wickedness of the human heart. They would be laid naked and exposed before God. What a horrifying place to be. Yet, once again we rejoice in this. Since a death has occurred, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Your debt will never, ever, ever be held to your account. Christ paid it in full. That's looking back to what we talked about yesterday, uh, last week, looking at his sacrifice, that that debt is canceled. It is completely and totally conquered in the blood of Christ. Now, last week we looked at Four ways his sacrifice was better. And this week, what I would like to look at is four ways that he mediates a far better covenant. So uh, Hebrews chapter 7 is where we'll begin. You see, now that we have this high priest, he's not like the Levites who can only sympathize with our weakness. He's not like, um, he's not like Moses who desired to atone but couldn't atone. He's not like Abraham who can only rescue Lot. No, no, he is far better. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 7, uh, starting in verse 23. It says this. Let's look at verse 22 because I like it too. This makes Jesus the the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. What a sweet phrase. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So notice this, Jesus' mediation is better for he is the eternal priest who intercedes on our behalf. He is the eternal priest who intercedes on our behalf. All of the former priests, they were bound by the fact that they were but men who would perish. 
but we have an eternal priest. And let me make this really exciting for you. If he is the eternal priest, no one will ever take his office and no one can ever introduce a new covenant. It is forever and always a covenant of grace for the church. They are only to be redeemed by grace through the finished work of Christ and ever constantly he is interceding that truth for his church. What a blessing it is to know that the priest who stands in between me and God is one who is eternal and longs to make intercession for me. Longs to make intercession for me. I can't imagine the great truth as it impacts the human heart. Can you imagine knowing that whenever your sin is brought to, to light in your mind, I mean, I, and we're, we're fools not to pay attention. Like, we, we know when we sin. We still feel that guilt and that burden. But what a sweet reminder it is that Christ intercedes for me. And do you think that the great God, the holy judge, does not accept the intercession of his son? We would be fools to believe that. That perfect, righteous blood that was shed on our behalf. He intercedes. He stands in the gap. And we can, rest, we can rest quite comfortably knowing that it is not just temporary. That means throughout the eternal ages to come, He still stands in the gap. He has made intercession for us. And we can have the utmost comfort and rest in our days, whether it be in a time of desperate pursuit of the Lord. We are faithfully following Him day in and day out. We're seeking His face. Or whether it be in a time of of great uh, tragedy or great trial and tribulation and temptation, we see sin wrestling in our hearts. We're longing for the things of the flesh, yet we can rest comfortably knowing that, that God intercedes for us, that Christ intercedes for us. And we can know that even though we sin, even though we fall short, we have great comfort because our great high priest intercedes for us. Secondly, Jesus' mediation is better, for he is holy yet sympathetic. Continuing in Hebrews 7, verses 26 and 27 say this. For it was was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So let's stop right there. It was necessary that we have a high priest who is holy, who can actually relate to the Father. The picture of high priest is one who can stand in the gap. That's the importance of having the incarnate God being our representative. He can actually relate to the Father. He is holy. He is perfect. He is flawless in every way, which means that he upholds the exact same standards. You know that? We picture Christ as full of grace and full of mercy, and he is that. We're fools if we believe that he is not also full of wrath and fury. We've, we, 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 we've, we've taken away that authority, that power, because while he was here on the earth, he was meek. But I want you to understand, the only time you see Christ meek and mild is while he is incarnate. Because through the days of old, as we look at the book of Joshua right now, that great commander of the Lord's army, he is wrath and fury, and he will execute judgment on sinners because he is holy. He is set apart from sinners, and he will condemn sin. And as he returns, rest assured, he is not weak. He comes in might. He comes in fury. And it will be a day of glory for his church. But what a day of dread for those who are not. My prayer is that as we reach that great day, that there are many, many in the church that are rejoicing. But also many in the church that may have a brief moment of remembering, my job here is to share Christ. That that day may be far more a day of glory than a day of dread. And so he is holy, he is perfect, he is set apart, which is an interesting picture. Just as the Levites were set apart, but, but they were still men, right? They were set apart, they were given distinct inheritances, they were given distinct tasks, but they were still men. They were still there to stand in the gap. And so what we see here is this great text from Hebrews 
uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. It says this. Uh, let's do verse 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest, one who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, the beauty of Christ coming and dwelling with man, the beauty of Christ being born here on the earth, dwelling with man, dwelling with sinful man, so that he could look at sinful man in his holy justice and wrath, but also sympathize with our weakness. You see, one of the frustrations that I have with Christmas is that we were so wrapped up in just the, the, the season. It's almost like we set apart one time to think about the incarnation of Christ and we don't even do it then. It's frustrating because when we consider the fact that the God-man clothed himself in human flesh, took on our nature, he dwelt in a state in, in this world of complete sinfulness, that he felt hunger. It's, it's humorous when you consider it. You see Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, 8, and he is asleep because he's tired. He's tired. Do you understand the magnitude of that? That the God who invented time has to sleep so that he can, he can work effectively in it. He's fatigued. And as you see him even go up in John chapter 4 to sit by the Samaritan woman at the well, he's thirsty. He longs for water. You see, we do have a high priest that sympathizes with our weakness. And friends, if we would stop and meditate on this for just a moment, maybe we would do what it says here in this text, to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We very rarely consider the fact that the the God of creation stepped into time, came through his own creature, and dwelt among us that he can say, I can sympathize with you. I've felt I felt what it means to hunger. I felt what it means to be in need. And so we have a great and faithful high priest. Not like the Levites who would stand in the gap, but they they would only understand what it meant to, to hunger. They would only understand what it meant to be in need. They would only understand man. You see, but we have one who completely understands both the one whom he's representing and the one who he is representing them to. He knows our weakness. One of the beauties of this. It was necessary, don't misunderstand. It was necessary that he come in human form. For if he didn't, he couldn't pay the sin of man. It was necessary that he came and he lived the perfect righteous life. But the fact that he invites us to come and say, tell me about your hunger. Tell me about how difficult it is to struggle with sin. I know it. I've dealt with it. He allowed himself to be tempted and tried. You think Satan pulled him in to the wilderness to be tested and tried of Satan's authority and power? We'd be fools to believe that. Voluntary. Voluntary. He went of his own accord, much like he laid down his life for in, of his own accord. Everything that he went through He understood what it means to go through pain, uh, considering the lashes that he was giving, considering being nailed to the cross. That 
when we consider the cross, we very, uh, we very rarely consider, uh, as we look at it, we consider, yes, the physical pain that he went through, but the atonement, the part where, where sin was paid for was in those three hours where he suffered in darkness, but, but the rest of it was just so he could sympathize with our pain. He understands our suffering. He understands what it means to go through difficult trials and tribulations. He knows them intimately so that he can be a help to us. What a blessing it is that we have a God who loves us, that desires to be the perfect high priest that says, I'm going to stand in the gap for everything that you ever deal with. I mean, we, we rarely consider this in our, and when we can think about his priesthood, we almost always just consider his sacrificial work, which we're so grateful for. But he wants us to know, come to me in your time of need. I am here and I know. It's a blessing. One that we think of far too rarely. Next, let's consider this. Jesus' mediation is better for it frees the church from the old covenant and carried them or brought them into the new covenant. Freedom. And we consider sin and we're, we're bound to it. And I think we forget that we actually are. That apart from the saving work of Christ in our life, friends, the only free choice we have to make is how we're going to sin. We are bound to that. We are bound to our sin. And we get to make decisions day in and day out. But ultimately, anything done apart from faith is sin, isn't it? And we have grace and faith provided for us in Christ. We're brought from the old covenant into the new. And friends, apart from Him coming and dwelling among us, fulfilling the covenant of works perfectly, then we would still be bound to that covenant. And so what we have here in His mediation, this new covenant that's brought to you, is freedom from the old first and foremost. What a blessing it is to be freed from a covenant that demands nothing but our death. Nothing but our death. The only thing the law demands of of us, aside from perfection, after we are held up to its standard, is kill Him. Kill Him. Yet the beautiful thing is this, that the covenant of, of, of works, the covenant of the law, it is satisfied fully because it killed you at the cross. You know that it killed you? The, the term substitutionary atonement, uh, it's a very important term, and ultimately it means that it's not like this idea where, okay, yeah, your sin was on Christ and, and it's paid for in full. The issue is God didn't simply deal with your sin, He dealt with you. He actually dealt with you at the cross. It is substitutionary in the sense that you did actually pay your debt at the cross, but Christ paid it for you. Christ paid the debt for you. It wasn't like he, he, he like took part of your sin. He dealt with you as a whole. That's why justification is such a blessed truth. It's not him justifying your sin. It's him justifying you. You actually have been dealt with in the courts of heaven. The gavel has fallen. And the sword was not sheathed. It was inserted into the side of Christ on your behalf. It was given. To, it, was, it was put in Him. You're justified. The covenant of the works, the covenant of works is satisfied. The law says, free Him, He's innocent. And we would rejoice in that, but there is far better news. That is not the end of His mediation. You see, He could have satisfied that and, and we could have been declared innocent, but never righteous. Never righteous. You see, we're actually at a negative here, guys. If Christ, is not only, if Christ only pays our debt and doesn't actually credit us something, then we are still, we, there's no reason to bless us. There's no reason to give us anything. But the beauty is that Christ's perfect sinless life is credited to our account so that we're brought into this new covenant of grace and God says, give him all of my riches at Christ's expense. See, Christ paid it in full so that we can be uh, honored children of God, high favorites of heaven. 
that He will bless us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That we actually are, by God's justice, required to be rewarded. Because Christ lived a perfect, sinless, holy, righteous life. So that when you stand before God, He's not going to look at you and look at your account of your life and maybe consider whether He's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. He will look at you based on the merits of Christ and proclaim with great grace, well done, my good and faithful servant. Don't you dare live in a state where you wonder. When we wonder what we will have in heaven, when we consider, Lord, will I... Will you, will you be thrilled with me? You must ask yourself first the question, is he thrilled with Christ? Because that's what's in your account, his righteousness, his perfection. Notice this finally. Jesus' mediation is better for it actually saves. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. Say this. And every priest stands daily at his service, stands daily interceding. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from, the, from that time until, the, until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, listen to this, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I was just notice this language real quickly. Single offering, namely looking at the cross of Christ. That's the offering we're looking at. This is the offering that is being presented before God day in and day. This is, this is what everything, all of Christ's mediation is, is based around. It's based on his sacrificial work. I'm standing in the gap now for them, those whom I've died for. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Your salvation is purchased and secured at the cross of Christ. Notice the language again. By a single offering perfected for all time. We have no room based on what we see in the Holy Scriptures about our great high priest to live in any type of bondage or fear or doubt for right now. We have a great high priest who intercedes for us. And one of the most beautiful things about this is he does not leave us um, unaware of what it looks like for him to intercede for us. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. Traditionally, when I come to a text like this, I just, this is, John chapter 17 arguably is one of the most astoundingly beautiful passages in all of Scripture. I mean, it is, I'm about to read it, I don't know, we'll see if I make it through. Because you see, he, he makes intercession for us. That's part of his priestly work. But one of the most beautiful things is he could have, I mean, he could have, why inspire the writing of John 17? I mean, this is a private moment. He's praying for his, for his people. But in John chapter 17, essentially, I think what he's doing, he's saying, look at my intercession. This is what I do day in and day out. This is my life for you. I ever live to intercede for you. So we come to John chapter 17. It is called the high priestly prayer. And if there's ever any part of the Bible you should memorize, John 17. It's gonna be, I mean, like, just invest time in it. Spend time meditating it. See how Christ intercedes for you. So what I'm going to do is very simple. I'm going to read this, and then we're going to be dismissed. Because I am convinced that Christ interceding for you, what we see here, is everything you need to know about Christ's great care for you. He does care for you. So let's see what John has to say, or Christ has to say here in the book of John. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. That you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have have sent. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you, have, you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That's you. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, Even though the world does not know me, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I may known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Here the great high priest intercede for you. What a grand blessing. He mediates on our behalf day in and day out. 